All right, well, the topic that we're going to look at tonight is the topic of reconciliation. Now, on the one hand, reconciliation may seem like a pretty straightforward concept, and that is really the case. But at the same time, the doctrine of reconciliation, as we're going to see tonight, is, is a little more profound and even complex. And so, as we go through it tonight, I, I, I don't want to, to just dump a whole bunch of information on you so that you're trying to drink out of a fire hydrant, but I do encourage you to uh, put aside all distractions and, and really have your thoughts attentive to the, the topic for tonight because it is such an important topic. Now, when we talk about reconciliation, the, the issue of reconciliation and the ever-pressing need for reconciliation strikes at the heart of the human condition. Strife, enmity, hostility, alienation, aggression, anger, discrimination, all of these things in all areas of life, whether it's in the most simplest relationships of marriage and family to the most broadest relationships of ethnicities and even nations against nations, the issue of strife and hostility is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. And of course, most seriously, the need for reconciliation describes the problem in the relationship between God and man. In fact, it's one of the most fundamental questions that we can ever face. How can a man have peace with his Creator? How can a man walk with God in fellowship? The answer to that question is the most important truth that we can consider. In fact, so important is this need for reconciliation that sometimes we could even use this term reconciliation to summarize the doctrine of salvation as a whole. What is salvation? Salvation is the reconciliation of God to man and man to God. One writer, one theologian put it this, this way. He said, the best New Testament word to describe the purpose of the atonement, that is the, the death of Christ and all of what he did on the cross, is the word reconciliation. And if we look at how Paul described evangelism, as he described the ministry of the gospel, he called it the ministry of reconciliation. It is a hugely important topic, and we must understand this because of its importance in our lives at a very practical level. Now, despite the importance of this topic, however, the Greek words, we're going to talk about them in, in a few minutes, the Greek words that we translate as reconciliation or to reconcile, specifically as they describe that reconciliation between God and man, occur relatively rarely or, or infrequently, and they're really found only in four key texts related to reconciliation. If you would want to know, those texts where we find the clusters of these terms related to the doctrine of reconciliation, we find them clustered in these four texts. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 to 11. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 21. Ephesians 2, verses 13 to 18. And Colossians 1, verses 19 to 22. Now, obviously, the Bible talks about reconciliation in other places as well, but with other terminology. But when we speak specifically or directly about the terminology of reconciliation, of what happens between man and God, these are the four key texts that we would turn to, and we're going to be referring to these texts quite a bit tonight. Now, before we define reconciliation and talk about the terminology related to this concept and talk about the essential elements of reconciliation, I, I do want to remind you 
of the bigger scope of salvation. What we're talking about here tonight is, is part of a series. Because as we've noted many times already, the doctrine of salvation is, is like the facets of a diamond. There's not just one element. Even though there's one diamond, there's many different angles. And each of these angle, angles reflects another piece of light. And, and every one of these angles communicates something unique about that diamond which we call salvation. And reconciliation is part of that, but reconciliation, therefore, then is connected to, to the, the, the whole diamond. And so if you're here for the first time tonight and you're, you're jumping in right now, understand that there's been a whole lot that we've already talked about, so we need to review just a little bit before we get into tonight. And I've said several times throughout the series already that when we talk about the entire scope of salvation, you can look at it really in three dimensions. You can look at salvation's arrangement, which is God's planning of salvation before time began, before creation. He already planned this, this doctrine of salvation. He already planned this wonderful story of redemption. The second dimension is what we would call salvation's accomplishment. And this accomplishment took place on the cross. Salvation was achieved or accomplished through that historical work of Jesus Christ, through his life of of 30 years or so leading up to his death on the cross and then the sacrificial work that he did on the cross and through his resurrection from the dead three days later. That's salvation's accomplishment, and it can be described as taking place within a a historical point in time. It's related to the life and death of Jesus Christ. And then the third dimension is salvation's application. How God takes all of that which has been accomplished by Jesus Christ on the cross and applies it individually to those who would believe. He applies it individually to those whom he has chosen to show himself favorable and merciful and gracious to those undeserving that he decides to save from the consequences of sin. So, if we look at salvation then in these three dimensions, there are elements that belong to each. And so in the first dimension, salvation's arrangement, before time, you can think of the doctrine of election. We talked about that several months ago. Then time begins. And when we talk about salvation's accomplishment, we think of the cross, we think of the doctrine of atonement. And several months ago, we talked about atonement and its related aspects of propitiation and redemption. There's more that we could add there, but we focused on those, atonement, propitiation, and redemption as being accomplished at the cross. Then, as I've said already, we look to the dimension of salvation's application. As God takes all that is achieved by Christ and applies it to the elect, And then under that heading, there are these components such as the calling, the effectual calling, regeneration, conversion as represented by repentance and faith, and justification, which we talked about two weeks ago, and tonight, the concept of reconciliation. So tonight we're looking at this context or this concept of reconciliation But what is especially noteworthy with this concept of reconciliation is that even though we experience the practical effect of reconciliation at the moment of conversion, we'll talk about that in just a few moments, reconciliation proper is tied back to salvation's accomplishment in Christ on the cross his sacrificial death, and that element that we called propitiation. Propitiation. And I'll define it again a little bit later, but 
we defined propitiation several months ago as the satisfaction that Christ procured in paying for the sins of all who would ever believe, for each and every sin of everyone who would ever believe and trust in him. On the cross, Christ paid the penalty for their sin in totality. And that was an acceptable offering. That was something which satisfied the wrath of God for that sin, the wrath of a holy and righteous God who must respond to every sin. Christ paid the penalty for those sins. And that satisfaction was called propitiation. Well, when we talk about the doctrine of reconciliation, as we're going to define it tonight, you're going to see that reconciliation is tied directly to this concept of propitiation. And I hope that by the end of tonight, you'll see that relationship and you'll understand it better. Now, with that said, let's look now at our key term for our study tonight, and it's the term reconciliation. Let's focus on that particular term. What does reconciliation mean, especially when we define it in terms of God's Word? Now, a general definition of reconciliation that could even be used to apply to any any relationships, even those among humans, would be this. And this is the general definition given by Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology. He defines reconciliation as follows. It is, quote, the removal of enmity and the restoration of fellowship between two parties. End quote. That's reconciliation. When reconciliation takes place, it removes hostility and changes the relationship to one of fellowship. Now, that scenario is not alien to any of us. As I said before, the need for reconciliation is ubiquitous. All of us have experienced that need because it is the tendency of the fallen human to create division and strife, not to live in harmony. And whether it's in the context of marriage, if you're married, or in the context of your relationship to your parents, or to the relationship with your children, and so on and so forth, you know of the need, this ever-present need for reconciliation. There's always the intrusion of hostility and there's always this, this need to supplant that hostility with a different attitude, a different posture, that of fellowship, of friendship. But what we are talking about tonight is not going to be reconciliation among friends on a horizontal level, reconciliation in families, between family members. We're talking about reconciliation with a holy and righteous God. And that is a reconciliation that is of a much more profound element or essence. But nonetheless, it comes back to this simple idea. Reconciliation, even between man and God, God and man, is the removal of enmity and the restoration of fellowship. That's how we define reconciliation. Now, let me give a more thorough theological definition as it relates to our standing, our relationship to God. This is given by John Murray in his book, Redemption, Accomplished and Applied. And this is what he said. And note, this is a very full definition. And we're going to be unpacking this definition throughout the rest of this evening. This is what he says in defining what reconciliation is. Quote, The reconciliation of which the Scripture speaks as accomplished by the death of Christ contemplates the relation of God to us 
It presupposes a relation of alienation. And it effects a relation of favor and peace. This new relation is constituted by the removal of the ground for the alienation. The ground is sin and guilt. The removal is wrought in the vicarious or substitutionary work of Christ when he was made sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. End quote. So he, here is this theological definition, and we're going to unpack this, as I said, but notice a few things already. The reconciliation that we are speaking of here with respect to our relationship to God and his to us is accomplished by the death of Christ. It's connected to that. Without the death of Christ, there would not be any possibility for true reconciliation with our Creator. It is tied inseparably to the death of Christ. It also presupposes an alienation that has taken place. And as we're going to see, that alienation is the problem of our sin. It's the problem of our depravity. It's the problem of our guilt. And this relation or this, this enmity, this hostility must be removed. It must be dealt with. And that's what the cross of Christ is all about, dealing with the ground of that enmity of that hostility and the death of Christ deals with that. And in response, it substitutes a new relationship, a relationship of peace, a relationship of favor and goodwill. And this is accomplished, again, through the work of Jesus Christ. And as we're going to see tonight, it is applied practically at the moment of conversion. Now, behind this understanding of, of reconciliation are two Greek words. I won't spend a lot of time on this, but they're unique Greek words. They don't occur very often. And let me just make note of them because it gets to the heart of a definition of reconciliation. The first Greek verb is the verb katalasso, katalasso, and it means to exchange hostility for a friendly relationship, to exchange hostility for a friendly relationship. That verb has a noun form, katalage, which refers to the establishment of an interrupted or, or sorry, the reestablishment of an interrupted or broken relationship. So the first verb here, katalasso, means to exchange hostility for friendship, to exchange hostility for friendship. The second verb is a related verb. It's based off the same root stem, and it's the verb apokatalasso. And it simply is a more intensified idea, and it means to reconcile completely, totally, wholly. But you can forget those Greek words. That's not very important. But remember this concept, though. At the heart of these Greek words that we translate as reconcile or reconciliation, at the heart of these Greek verbs is the idea of change. That's at the heart of the Greek, of the New Testament concept of reconciliation. And in particular, what is changed is this, the change from hostility to friendship. That's what's at the heart of the biblical concept of reconciliation. The change from a posture and attitude of hostility to one of friendship. So the Bible speaks, and that's why, as I mentioned before, Wayne Grudem defines this term as the removal of enmity and the restoration of fellowship. And so with that in mind, let me read one text now before we begin to pull that bigger definition apart and look at its essential characteristics. But let's turn for a moment to see this expressed in the words of the Apostle Paul 
in a very important text related to reconciliation where we find this cluster of verbs and, 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 and nouns related to the concept of reconciliation. It's Romans 5, 8 to 11, and this is what Paul writes. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Very powerful text. And if we look at this text and the three others that I mentioned from 2 Corinthians and Ephesians and Colossians, I want us to note tonight six essential characteristics, six essential characteristics of the biblical doctrine of reconciliation. Number one, the first. Reconciliation was necessitated by our sin. The first essential quality. Reconciliation was necessitated by our sin. This speaks to the need for reconciliation. Why is reconciliation in the Bible? Why do we need to talk about it? Why is it a part of of the doctrine of salvation? Reconciliation was necessitated by our sin. Man, you... And I are the cause of the hostility. And it is not just that man sins by being angry at God. It's not just that man sins by showing hostility directly towards God. But man causes enmity simply by his sinfulness. It doesn't matter whether that sinfulness is aimed directly towards God or not. Man's sinfulness is what creates hostility. But we must understand this. Our enmity towards God, our hostility towards God, has a reaction approach as well, or a reactionary measure as well. The enmity is mutual. It's so important to recognize this. The Bible speaks of enmity as existing on both sides. Now, we often don't think of that, especially in in American evangelicalism today. God is portrayed as this grandfather who could never be angry, who certainly has no wrath, and from even before the beginning of time has never been angry at anything and is doing all he can simply to woo everybody to himself. That's not the biblical portrayal. As we even read in the text in Romans 5, we read words like wrath, the wrath of God. The Bible speaks of enmity as existing on both sides. Yes, man is hostile towards God, but God must necessarily be an enemy of sinful man. It's important to remember that. A God who is perfectly righteous, who is holy and set apart from sin and lawlessness, cannot fellowship with those who love what is contrary to his nature. He cannot turn a blind eye on it. And just think of this. As much as we would like him to do that, if God would for a moment close his eyes to sinfulness. Forget sinfulness existed for just a moment. He would cease to be God and everything would be destroyed. He is perfect because he is righteous. And because he is righteous, he cannot respond to or relate to sinfulness by just thinking it doesn't exist. 
necessarily for him to remain faithful to who he is in his perfection. He must respond to sinfulness with hostility. He must respond to sinfulness with hostility. Now, let's look at the, the, the text, the Scripture. Not even those texts that, that just deal with reconciliation, but others as well. We, we see this theme throughout Scripture. For example, Isaiah 59 verse 2. Here, Isaiah records these words. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The wrath of God is revealed. God is not neutral. He's not ambivalent to sin and sinfulness. In Romans chapter 5, verse 10, we read that we were enemies. Enemies. Romans chapter 8, verses 7 to 8 says this, the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. There's our hostility. There's the hostility of man toward God. And it's hostile because it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh, now here's God's hostility to them. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That is God's necessary response. He cannot be pleased by sin. It would be contrary to his nature. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3, there Paul states, Among them, we too, Paul speaking to the Ephesian believers, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. What Paul is speaking of there is not that they were wrathful children, children who were always doing wrathful things, but children who were marked by wrath, children who had the wrath of God abiding on them. That's what Paul says there in Ephesians 2 verse 3, and Paul says we were once that, that, that kind of people. Ephesians 5 verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sins of disobedience. God is at enmity with the sons of disobedience. Colossians 1 verse 21, we were formerly alienated and hostile in mind. James 4 verse 4, friendship with the world is hostility toward God. All these terms, all these texts speak of this broken relationship on both sides. Thus, the, the doctrine of reconciliation, this change in posture, is not only needed for man. Reconciliation must affect God who can never find fellowship with darkness. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and 15 says, What partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? There cannot be. And so reconciliation must deal with both parties, not just with man, but with God who cannot be in harmony with sinners. James Denny said it this way, the thing that has to be dealt with, that has to be overcome in the work of reconciliation, is not man's distrust of God, but God's condemnation of man. What must be overcome is not man's hostility towards God, it is God's hostility towards sinful man. Or as John Murray states, quote, it is not our enmity against God that comes to the forefront in the reconciliation, but God's alienation from us. Now, most of the time when we think of the doctrine of reconciliation, we conceive it wholly in terms of reconciling man to God. And certainly that is, that is a huge emphasis of these texts. But we must also remember that there must also take place a reconciliation of God to man. 
It's interesting. We sang the song, Arise, my soul, arise. And stanza four had these words, To God I'm reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. Now this is a hymn by Charles Wesley written in the 1700s. Its wording has changed a little bit over time, even as it appears in our hymnal. But originally, this is what Charles Wesley wrote for the first line of stanza four. Rather than saying, to God I'm reconciled, he wrote this, my God is reconciled. You see the difference? Think on that. My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. Now, having said that, it is important to note, though, that while this enmity is mutual, and while reconciliation is needed for both parties, both for God towards man and man towards God, there is a vast difference in the nature of the enmity that exists and the nature of the reconciliation that is needed. Note this, man's alienation is thoroughly sinful in nature. He is altogether blameworthy. Understand that about your alienation from God. Before you were saved and and as you were in that that status of being a child at enmity with God, that enmity was all on you. You were the one to blame in the broken relationship. God's alienation is thoroughly necessary in nature. It is not sinful. It is righteous. He must, out of righteousness, show enmity towards unrighteousness. But man's enmity is thoroughly sinful in nature. So recognize the difference that exists there. God must be hostile, but our hostility towards him is thoroughly sinful. Moreover, the difference in the nature of the alienation means that the reconciliation needed for man is not the same kind as is needed for God. God is not blameworthy in this broken relationship though he must be hostile. And so the reconciliation needed for him is different than the reconciliation needed for us. He is righteous in his hostility. We are sinful in our hostility. So the reconciliation needed to bring him towards us is a different kind of reconciliation than the reconciliation needed to bring us to God. We could say it's asymmetrical. It's not the exact same. Man has caused the estrangement and is in no position or capacity to end it because he is the sinful one. But as we're going to see in just a moment, God is not the sinful one, the cause, and therefore he is in the position, the very position that we need, and he has the capacity to end the hostility. Leon Morris said it this way, Man has departed from God by his sin and erected the barrier which separates the two. The fault for the estrangement lies wholly on man's side. Thus, if reconciliation is to take place, there must be a complete change of attitude on man's past. He must repent of sin and turn away from it. This has no parallel from God's side. And that leads us to Essential element number two, reconciliation was initiated and achieved by God alone. Reconciliation was initiated and achieved by God and God alone. And so we can define this element as the cause of reconciliation. In all the contexts, in those four key texts out of Romans, Ephesians, Colossians, 2 Corinthians, God is always the stated or implied 
subject of the act, the actor, while man is always the passive object in reconciliation. For example, in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19, we read these words. Now all these things, he's speaking of verse 17, of being a new creation in Christ. Verse 17 of 2 Corinthians 5. He, he says, now all these things are from God. Who reconciled us to himself through Christ? And a few words later, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Romans 5 verse 10. While we were enemies, we were reconciled. There's the passive construction. We were reconciled to God. Romans 5 verse 11. We have now received the reconciliation. Notice it says received and not achieved. We did not achieve reconciliation. We did not cause it. We did not instigate it. We simply receive it. Colossians 1, 19 to 20. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And a few words later, he has now reconciled you in his, in his fleshly body through death. Man is never the initiator of spiritual reconciliation. God is the single author and achiever of this reconciliation. And what is amazing is that he was the righteous offended party. Therefore, we must see that this doctrine of reconciliation is monergistic in nature in that God accomplished it, we simply receive it. It is all done by God. It is not something where he requires us to come halfway and he comes halfway. He contributes 50%. We contribute 50%. We find some common ground and so on. No, that's not how the Bible describes reconciliation. It describes reconciliation as wholly achieved by God, who is the initiator, the author, and the accomplisher of this reconciliation. One theologian, Michael Horton, said this, We do not reconcile ourselves to God. God reconciles himself to us and us to him. Or again, Leon Morris, the real important part of reconciliation is the action of God and not the sinner's response. Or MacArthur and Mayhew say this, man does not effect this reconciliation by doing something to remove God's hostility towards his sin. Rather, sinners passively receive reconciliation as a gift through the work of Christ. And that's so important for all of us to remember When you talk about and you testify to the peace that you now enjoy with God, you must always add this caveat. He did everything. He reconciled me to him. He reconciled himself to me. I was an enemy, and he did it. That leads us to essential quality number three, essential element of reconciliation is is this, this third one, is that reconciliation was accomplished through the sacrifice of Christ. I've mentioned this already. It could not happen apart from Christ's accomplishment on the cross. This is the means of reconciliation, how God made this happen. One theologian has noted that the, the fundamental problem when we talk about reconciliation, and this even deals with reconciliation on horizontal levels between individuals, but so much more so the, the problem that exists between man and God. He writes, quote, There can be no reconciliation between persons by ignoring the deep-seated ground of offense. This must be destroyed if the reconciliation is to be complete and lasting. If God and man are to be reconciled, it cannot be by the simple expedience of ignoring sin, but only by overcoming it, end quote. And that is exactly what the cross of Christ does. As you go through these texts that speak about reconciliation, 
you find these prepositional phrases used over and over again, such as through the death of his son, Romans 5 verse 10, or Romans 5 verse 11, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19, through Christ and in Christ. Ephesians 2, 13 to 16, by the blood of Christ and through the cross. Colossians 1, 19 to 22, through Christ, through the blood of his cross, in his fleshly body, through death. This is how reconciliation is achieved. See, reconciliation is inseparable from the sacrifice of Christ. And this leads to several important observations. Number one, reconciliation is the result of propitiation. Remember, we describe the atonement as propitiation, as a satisfaction that Jesus accomplished on the cross, a satisfaction of the wrath of God as he paid the penalty for specific sins of specific people. One writer, one commentator said this, the enmity must above all belong to him to whom wrath is attributed and the blood of Christ did not flow in the first place to work a change in our dispositions Godward, but to bring about a change in God's disposition toward us. That was propitiation. And so because reconciliation is only possible through the the death and, and sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we must see reconciliation and propitiation as related. Number two, second observation. Reconciliation was not dependent upon man's achievement, but upon Christ's achievement. And once again, man's passive role is is emphasized here. Leon Morris says, Reconciliation was wrought on the cross before there was anything in man's heart to correspond. Number three, that Christ paid the penalty for the cause of alienation between God and man demonstrates the supreme love of God toward men and that we were still enemies. And he did this to his son for us. That is the supreme love that is demonstrated in this doctrine. Number four, since reconciliation is tied to the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ, it must be viewed as an accomplished fact, not a gradual process or a potential reality. It's done. Reconciliation has been achieved. It only only remains for man to receive it. But reconciliation has been once for all accomplished. Again, James Denny says this, the work of reconciliation in the sense of the New Testament is a work which is finished, and which we must conceive to be finished before the gospel is ever preached. As we'll see in just a moment, when we preach the gospel, we don't talk about the possibility that God could somehow do something with their sin. We hold out the reality that through Christ, reconciliation is achieved. It remains for you to receive it. I could add a fifth note here. It's not in your notes. It's not on the slides here, but it's this. Because reconciliation is tied to the death of Christ, there can be no reconciliation outside of the gospel. You hear all kinds of people today trying to to join hands with other religions and say all roads lead to God. That is a lie from the pit of hell. It's an attempt by the great deceiver to deceive many. There is only one way to peace with God. And that is through Jesus Christ. And anybody who talks about peace with their creator, apart from Jesus and his sacrifice, is offering a bill of goods which has nothing to do with true reconciliation. Number four, our fourth essential element of this doctrine. Reconciliation established an attitude of peace. It established an attitude of peace on God's part. 
This is the result of reconciliation. Reconciliation, remember, is the change, right? We define reconciliation at its heart as a change from enmity to friendship. It it refers to this change of attitude, this change of posture. And this is what reconciliation through the death of Christ achieved in God. It is the change in God's attitude toward those whom he would show his special unmerited grace even before they would believe. And therefore, we say this, it is forensic in, in nature. It is forensic. It's, it's judicial-like in nature when God says, you know what? Yes, he is an enemy. But based upon what Christ has done, my attitude now towards him is one of peace. I declare a peaceful disposition. We see this in 2 Corinthians 5.19. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. MacArthur and Mayhew therefore state, by imputing our sins to Christ our scapegoat, by exercising his wrath upon him as our substitute, and by imputing his righteousness to us, God has removed the ground of his enmity against us, namely the guilt of sin. As propitiation is the removal of God's wrath against sinners, so reconciliation is the removal of God's enmity against sinners. Because of reconciliation, God no longer looks upon the elect as objects of wrath and enmity, but as the objects of his love. And he becomes to them the God of peace. The God of peace. We come across that title several times in the New Testament, particularly in Paul's letters, and we skip over it so fast, I don't think we understand the profundity of that title. He is the God of of peace. Paul even says in Ephesians 2 verse 14 that Christ himself is our peace. It's our peace. Just a few months ago or weeks ago, a month ago, I guess, six weeks ago, we were singing Christmas hymns. And this one that is so powerful, again, written by Charles Wesley, reads these words and And this echoes the words of the angels recorded in Luke chapter 2, verse 14. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. As the angels declared to the shepherds in the field that the Messiah had been born in Bethlehem, they referred to him as peace. He is peace. He is what represents the the reconciliation between God, God and man and man and God. Number five, reconciliation is realized at conversion. Now it's achieved at the cross We could say this, its efficacy is demonstrated through conversion. That moment when we, because of the regenerating, life-giving change that takes place in us by the Holy Spirit, we take the first breaths of spiritual life and we turn from our sin and we turn to God in faith. We embrace His promise and, and we believe that that promise is for us And all of a sudden, if you're a believer here, you know what this is like. All of a sudden, your hostility towards him ended in a split second. And you saw him as your only hope. You saw him as your peace. That is what conversion brings. That is the realization of what was accomplished through Christ on the cross. It speaks of the reconciliation, the efficacy of reconciliation when it is applied to us in that moment. 
Paul speaks of this in Romans 5 verse 1, where he ties it to justification. And he says this, therefore, having been justified by faith, and that speaks of a completed act that speaks of what happens to us at that declarative moment when God says through faith, that person is righteous because of what my son did on the cross. Paul says, because of that, we now have peace. We experience peace with God. Reconciliation is now realized in real life. What has been objective and external towards us in the cross is now made internal and subjective, experiential in us. Romans 5 verse 11 refers to it as the moment when we receive the reconciliation. We receive the reconciliation. And as a result, the peace which God himself secured, that state of existence which he entered into with respect to us, now becomes one of reciprocity as we enter into peace with him. A.W. Pink put it this way, if it be asked, was God reconciled to all the elect and they to him the moment Christ cried, it is finished? The answer is both yes and no. We must distinguish between, number one, reconciliation in the eternal purpose of God. Number two, as it was effected or achieved by Christ, Number three, as it is offered to us in the gospel. And number four, as it actually becomes ours when we believe. MacArthur and Mayhew say it this way, Therefore, the mutual peace accomplished by the act of reconciliation is experienced as the result of reconciliation. When the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit overcomes man's hostility to God as the Spirit applies Christ's objective work to sinners, granting them justifying faith by which they have peace with God, Romans 5.1. Because of Christ's atonement, sinners once separated from God may be restored to loving fellowship with him whom they were once created to know and worship, end quote. Another quote here as we come to a close by John Owen. He says this regarding the application of reconciliation. To make perfect reconciliation, which, is, which Christ is said to, in many places to do, it is required first that the wrath of God be turned away, his anger removed, and all the effects of enmity on his part toward us. Secondly, that we be turned away from our disposition to him and brought into voluntary obedience. Until both of these be effected, reconciliation is not perfected. But it is perfected, we say at conversion. Finally, Thomas Goodwin said it this way, God designed to set forth his love so as to attain the ends of loving. It is not to give forth peace only, but to manifest goodwill and kindness as that speech of the angel shows in Luke 2 verse 14. Yes, the ground of his showing mercy is his love. And although on our part, our love and friendship to God is not the ground of his, yet it is the end or aim of his. Though he did not love us because we loved him first, yet he loved us that we might love him in return. End quote. And the idea is this. He purchased the reconciliation on the cross for us. His attitude towards us changed, but he did not leave it there. He loved us. He made peace with us so that we would enjoy peace with him. And that comes through faith in Christ. That leads us to our final aspect here. Number six, reconciliation is now the theme of our gospel proclamation. Reconciliation is now the theme 
of our gospel proclamation. This is the implication of reconciliation. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 19, where he talks about us as having been given the ministry of reconciliation, that we are ambassadors as though we are making, as though God is making an appeal through us. And we, being God's mouthpiece, proclaim to the world, be reconciled to God. That's our message. Be reconciled. He has done it on the cross. Now you turn to him in faith. Receive the reconciliation. In Ephesians 2 verse 17 to 18, we read that Jesus came and preached peace. And so that becomes our message. A message of peace to a world at hostility toward God. Ephesians 6 verse 15 says that we must put on the shoes with preparation of the gospel of peace. That's a reference to the doctrine of reconciliation. The gospel that we proclaim is the message of peace. And so this is what we state to the unbelieving world. This is what we state to those who are now experiencing, or maybe not even thinking of it, but who are at enmity towards God. This is our message as those who are ambassadors, who are carrying from God, our Lord and Master, his message to the world. Let me use the words of John Murray here, who said this, be no longer in a state of alienation from God, but rather enter into the relation of favor and peace established by the reconciliatory work of Christ. Take advantage of the grace of God and enter into the status of peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe that the message is one of fact and enter into the joy and blessing of what God has wrought. Receive the reconciliation. End quote. That's our message We proclaim this message as central to our gospel. Receive the reconciliation. You can't do anything to make yourself right with God. And if you want to keep trying, we can tell you the end result. We know it with certainty. It is eternal damnation. But the reconciliation that is needed has been achieved by God. He initiated it. He authored it. He accomplished it. And now he gives that message to me to hold out to you. Receive the reconciliation of God. Be at peace with your creator, with your judge. When that takes place, We're able to echo the words of Charles Wesley. My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence, I now draw nigh. With confidence, I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word on reconciliation. It describes us to a T. We were enemies. We were hostile. And that hostility was created by our sinfulness and guilt. It describes you as being necessarily hostile towards us. We're thankful for that because it shows you are perfect in righteousness. And instead of demeaning righteousness, instead you found a way to to make peace. And you did it through your son. You did it through your son. You were the righteous offended party. There was no obligation on your part. We were the sinners, the cause cause of the hostility, and there was nothing we could do. Yet you did it all. 
Now in the gospel, you, you hold out this wonderful reality. And you beckon to the lost. Receive the reconciliation. And that when we do, that by faith when we receive it, we enter into the experience of peace with you. And that is reciprocated. We can now live for the rest of our lives with you. We can walk once again with you. Never to again be at war, but to enjoy peace. And we thank you for that. In the name of Jesus, our peace. Amen.